Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our regular conversation about disruptive innovation in Canada and around the world. I'm John Stackhouse. Joining me today is Marianne Turk. She heads digital strategy at the NFL and oversees the league's media properties, including NFL Network, NFL Films, and NFL.com. The league is working to attract a whole new generation of fans more familiar with smartphones and social media than cable TV. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. So let's talk first about your move. Um, We used to be together in the Bell Media empire many years ago, and uh, you, of course, ran Bell Bell Media, and then suddenly jumped to the NFL. Great, uh, cool career move, but also took you from Toronto to LA. You've been there, how long is it now? Uh, Just a year. A year? Yeah, almost exactly. What's the move been like? It's been great. You know, one of the um, great opportunities about running Bell Media was learning a lot more about sports through TSN and the great team that's there. So when the opportunity came across from the NFL to go and be on the content side as opposed to distribution, it was pretty attractive. And then interesting time in our life personally, our kids are almost out of the house, uh, you know, to go and have an adventure in California. And really, it was the attraction of going stateside, working for such an iconic brand, and having the opportunity to really work with content that's that's world-class. It didn't hurt that they recruited me in January <laughs> to move to LA. I mean, it's 70 degrees and sunny every single day. <laughs> and, and the biggest surprise, I guess it's no surprise that it's 70 and sunny every day. Biggest surprise moving to LA? Um, I wouldn't say total surprise um, at all. It was more the fundamental importance of football to the American culture. And I think that that um, has manifested itself in a lot of different ways this season, as we all know, but it's, um, it's such an integral part of what so many people do. I mean, the fan base is over 150 million people. It consumes a lot of content. It's very, very popular across broadcasts still. It's that close integration and close tie to the American culture that I knew, but I, now you're living it and it's, it's quite incredible. So we want to talk about uh, all of those issues, including the, uh, the the manifestations, as you mentioned. But one of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you and talk about the NFL from a disruption point of view is to get your insights on how content is changing, because the NFL has been one of the, the, the world's great kind of models of content. They may not like it uh, referred to that way, but it is, uh, it is content, certainly works on broadcast, is working on lots of digital channels. People love it. They consume it. They engage with it. And it's shifting to all sorts of new kind of forms of engagement. And I think pretty much every business out there can learn from that sort of transition, how you're being disrupted, but how you're also trying to disrupt yourself. I wanted to get your thoughts and talk a bit about how that content is evolving. So you've got your arms now around, as I you know, the showcase of games, but obviously we're all consuming those games in very, very different ways. How do you how do you think about uh, those challenges? Well, I think. Um when you talk about content, particularly in the sports arena, and frankly, any arena, like the first principles is it has to be fun and it has to be engaging and people want to have to watch it. So when we think about that at the NFL, it's about 
the closeness of, of the games, the excitement of the games, the suspense of the games. And um, we do that in a lot of different ways. I mean, this year was a fantastic year where five of the eight divisional finalists were, you know, third or fourth in division last year. So it's about upsets and excitements and unexpected finishes like the finish in the Minnesota, uh, at the Minnesota game in the playoffs, the finish of the Super Bowl. That, that's the kind of baseline for good content. Then the next step is where are people going to view it and how do they want to consume it? And that's, of course, where everybody is struggling. And we're working across different platforms. We've got relationships with Facebook. We've got relationships with Twitter. We've got, obviously, with Amazon in the States on the, the streaming platform. It's managing to different platforms and, frankly, following your fan where they want to watch it. And we know a lot of where, you know, where they want to consume it. And we're working with, working with data and analytics to put the right content in the right places. That's a really interesting and important point about the element of surprise, as every great novelist would uh, would appreciate. But we often underestimate, even in the digital age, just the the, the, the power of, uh, of, of, of surprise. I've often thought one of the reasons for uh, Trump's success is that he gets the, the, the power of surprise. In fact, before his election, I remember someone saying to me he would, this was an American politician, he will win because he is the master of reality TV. And we're in the age of reality TV. And one of the powers of reality TV is the surprise. You just, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to win, who's going to be the survivor. Uh, so I'm not trying to equate the no, NFL with, with, with Trumpism, but that power of surprise is, especially in this age where we think everything is predictable and we use all our analytics to predict, right. well, there's still that power of surprise. Well, you know, sports is ground zero for reality TV. How so? It's the first reality TV that was ever produced, right? It's real. It's what's happening, right? And sports is reality and sports is live. It's whether you're looking at housewives or anything, it's it's what's going on, it's live, it's real, and sports has always been that. So it's, it was ground zero, and I think reality TV has taken a page out of sports. And what what do you think you can take a page out of from reality TV as you watch it evolve to apply to, say, where the NFL is going? Well, I don't know whether it's reality TV or just, in general, entertainment television and entertainment more broadly, and that is creating superstars. We know in big you know, movie hits and things like that. It's all about the star that you get, not all about, but it's a lot about the stars that you get to bring the pull of viewers and things like that. And I think that we have to work a little bit harder and figure out a way in the context of the culture of football, which is team and family first, individual second, to make some superstars out of our key players. You know, we've, we had some really incredible rookies this year with Kareem Hunt and Carson Wentz. And we're working with the incoming draft class this year to um, raise the profile of these individuals, uh, irrespective of where they go. So fans will follow the player. We want fans to follow players. We want fans to follow teams. And I think that we increase avidity doing that and we increase fandom doing that. That, no, that word fandom, I love. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Ex- expand a bit, if you wouldn't mind, on what what, do, what does fandom mean? Well, it's everything. I mean, it, it's, um, it's fans watch football on television, fans consume football on digital media, fans talk about football. If it weren't for the fans, there wouldn't be any, right? So I think that when we, at the NFL, across all of the business units, not just media, we really try and talk about the fan at the center of every conversation and what do they want? What do they want in the game? What do they want on television for the viewing experience? What do they want in the in-stadium experience? Um, That's why 
we think about fandom, it would be the same thing as any other business. It's just they talk about customers. But it, Putting it, the customer it, first. We put it, our fans first. Every business talks about the customer first and being customer-centric. And as we all know, many are not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are just uh, words. How do you make it more than just words at uh, the NFL? Because I would think the league is also about the players. It's about the owners. But, but fundamentally, it's about the game, which is the players. Right. And I think the owners are fans first too, right? Because, because it's the league is the central body, but the, the fans engage with teams. So the owners are even more intense and more on, on the front line of fandom, right? They're there in the stadiums with their fans. They're there at, you know, pregame tailgates with their fans. They talk to their fans. The players talk to their fans. So it's, it's always so real. It's in every 30, 32 of the franchises, it's it's frontline fandom all the time. And we at the league, we aren't on the front lines all the time. We go to a lot of games and we engage with a lot of fans. But it's it's important for us to remember that even more so uh, as we're having conversations. Because at the team level, they are there like crazy. And they do amazing, amazing work. Our fans love our teams. Yeah, I'm not sure there's another league that has the loyal following that I've seen of teams for the NFL. People are, they're, they're Eagles fans or Raiders fans. There's Raiders Nation. Right. for life. Often for these are things passed on through generations and it transcends geography more than I think uh, you see in other sports. And teams have always been good at monetizing that through, well, ticket sales and merchandise mm-hmm. as, as the big ones as well as uh, the, the, the TV deals. But I sense you're trying to take it further than that and create fandom around individual players. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the team. It's not just the Eagles. It's There's a Carson Wentz fan community that that he will build up. What does that do to the team first model? How do you balance that kind of the, the, the team centricity, if I can call it that, of of the league and its culture with this rise of of the individual and back to the reality TV model mm-hmm. that maybe has people following individuals a little more than teams? Well I think that you can follow both. Right. I mean, I think that, look, you know, when Peyton Manning made the switch late in his career, did more people watch the Broncos than than they had in the past? Absolutely. They did because he was the quarterback. I think that does that mean there are less Colts fans? And I don't think so. I think people kind of can, can fans can be smart enough to do both, frankly. And I just think that uh, when you have phenomenal players who are phenomenal athletes, it should be showcased. I mean, Tom Brady is another perfect example, right? He's iconic. Now, he's been with the same team, the same group for almost 20 years now. But it's um, when these superstars move around, I think that fans are good about following individuals and following their team at the same time. I don't think that that takes anything away from it, especially, you know, here in Canada. I always get asked down there, so do you have a team? And I never really did have a team. Like when, when we sat down and we were avid football fans as a family, when we sat down, I mean, it was about the players. Like my daughter liked Palomalo. He liked, she liked different players. And I liked different players because of how I thought they analyzed the game, how smart they were, how hard I thought they worked, like all the normal things that fans think about. I think that there's room for both for sure. 
So uh, unfortunately, I grew up as part of uh, Kenny Stabler fandom. So I was a Raiders fan, which was glorious for a couple of years, and it's been painful for uh, for for decades uh, since. So fandom has its uh, its burdens as well as its uh, as well as its blitz. But hey, maybe the move, yet another Raiders move, will will uh, help. Who 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 knows? Curious how you uh, actually make money off of this transition, the great monetization question, uh, especially as audiences disaggregate, as they fragment. Mm -hmm. You talked about following the audience, which makes a ton of sense, um, but you got to follow the money too, I guess. And curious what you're learning about how to maintain a business model or develop a new business model as you're pursuing fandom through different, different channels. I would say that we put the priority on following the fan and design a monetization model that suits that. So, for instance, we have um, recently done a licensing deal with Facebook where we produce content that uh, exists on Facebook because a lot of people now consume their sports highlights and other news highlights on curated news feeds like Facebook. So what would have been digital advertising revenue on our owned and operated properties is now licensing revenue from Facebook. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where if our fans want to consume that kind of content on Facebook, we've got to put it there and we've got to make sure that we're getting our fair share of the value created there from between Facebook and us. But it's, it's all about, seriously, it's all about going where the fans are and then designing the monetization model that's going to work for that. So probably every business in the world is wondering, how do you get that fair share when you're dealing with uh, Facebook from the value that you're creating? What insights can you share in terms of how you uh, negotiate with these different platforms? You've been very good at negotiating with traditional media, Fox, for instance, over the broadcast rights. I suspect it's a different conversation with the new media channels. Look, the team that does the deals at the NFL has been doing them for a long time, and they're some of the the best negotiators and best deal folks I've ever worked with. They understand and have an intrinsic understanding of the value of our content. And is it different between a domestic broadcaster and a global social network platform that has 2 billion or so followers? It's, it is different. And then we're not putting live games on Facebook exclusively. We're putting highlights and we're putting summarized games on Facebook. So it's different content. And that content has never really been done before. So everybody's figuring it out at the same time to understand what the value is. And you just, you have to be firm to your belief that you've got to go where your, go where your fans are and be confident that if you do a two-year deal with Facebook or a three-year deal with Facebook and it doesn't appear that the value equation is right, that you can course correct on your way. But wouldn't it have been a terrible mistake not to go there at all because you weren't sure what the value equation was? Nobody knows what the value equation is. Everybody's trying to figure it out at the same time here. A lot of talk, as you know, about the changing demographics of NFL viewership and and all sports, frankly, and the perception that it's aging very rapidly. Is that a fair perception? Well, I think the uh, demographics of the television viewer is aging. So a lot of our consumption is on television, and we would follow that as a kind of momentum-based thing. What we're really proud of this past season is some of the work we did on Thursday Night Football in the States, and we really increased the younger demographic of our viewership, the 18 to 49. And we did that by positioning Thursday Night Football as a, your weekend starts here. And it's what you do on Thursday night after you've finished 
work for the day and you go to the pub and you watch or you go home and you watch with friends and family. Even the promotional spots we did were focused much more on millennials, even a little bit more on women and saw great, great success in expanding the fan base there. We've also done quite a bit of, this is this is in the marketing department, paid media on social uh, and other platforms to attract younger fans to the game. And that's been working well for us as well. And are, are the cord, is, is, is the cord cutting generation watching on a big screen? Yeah, we do see that. I mean, we, in the entire industry, the out of home viewing hasn't been, the ratings haven't been, um, properly sorted through yet. We're working with Nielsen on that, but we do think that 18 to 49s are watching on big screens. We also think they're watching on their phones and they're watching on their tablets. You know, it's interesting, years ago at Bell, when we started our building the wireless business about a decade ago, the guy running at Wade Osterman said, pick a screen and fill it with goodness. And I use that now at the NFL, like pick a screen and fill it with football. Like just don't get worked up on where it is. Just pick a screen and fill it with football and um, people will find it. And you have to be in this day and age. I believe that what, you know, in the early days of Netflix and Google and these, you know, sort of first in disruptors, they trained everybody to demand ubiquity make it easy for me to find the content that I want to watch because I'm only going to spend about five seconds looking for it and then I'm just going to bump into something else that I like better and I'm going to watch that. So it's really about evolving the rights landscape to make sure that everybody's being compensated and getting their fair, fair share of the value while being ubiquitous with the content. Does the content need to change and evolve for that different viewership, whether it's a different demographic or just the different screens and habits that we're all developing? Well, I think so. And I think it depends what people, they sort of equate all millennials watch all content on a phone. I don't know that that's entirely true. In fact, I know it's not. It's what content, what, what is the kind of content for what platform, right? So obviously on a phone, people want to watch short form or snackable content. They will watch live games, but we believe that the preference is always to watch a live game on a larger screen. And it's still, going back to the very start of the conversation, it is still about making the content that people want to watch, right? That's job one, to make the content that people want to watch. And that's about the game. It's about the competition. It's about the players. And then, yeah, we do make different content for different platforms, different content for Twitter, different content, short form, really short videos for Instagram, uh, longer kind of five to eight minute game summaries for Facebook. We do all sorts of different things. Talk a bit about how you're expanding content, because in some ways you've got a, a fixed inventory of, I don't know what the number is, but as I'm guessing it's like 500 hours, essentially, of games yeah. a season. If there's um, 8,000 hours in a year, how do you sort of multiply those 500 hours to fill more of those watching and waking hours that, uh, that we all have? Well, there's a number of different things we do sort of around the periphery of the live games. And certainly NFL Network has a lot of that content, you know, starting with the, the big, uh, you know, banner shows like Good Morning Football, which has just taken off this year and uh, had double-digit growth in ratings. Um, it's a 7, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. show. That's sort of a daily show. And then on Sunday mornings, our sort of stacked Hall of Fame cast for game day morning that's hosted by Rich Eisen is also gaining in popularity. And we own that day part as well. 
And we're finding we are stealing share from other pregame shows. And a lot of it is because we're talking about football. We're not talking about other stuff going on around football. We're actually talking about football, about players, about plays, about matchups, about predicting game outcomes, about coaches, about GMs, about trades, about things that casual and avid football fans alike want to hear about. What is it that you're seeing that is drawing such a significant millennial audience beyond having millennials on, on the, 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 the screen? Because I'm not sure that's intuitive that, you know, creating a program like that, especially weekday mornings, not a great uh, time mm-hmm. for viewership uh, on any medium, would, uh, would play well demographically. Right. I don't know if you saw any of the program that was done around when, you know, the new season of Game of Thrones came out, right? They all dressed up and they had a whole lot of fun with it. Things like that, that cross over into entertainment that is popular with millennials. It's just, it's the kind of chemistry and interaction that I think appeals to younger folks who want to hear about football in that way, as opposed to, you know, more shiny floor shows that have typically been the norm. Love that term, shiny floor shows. Mm. Not sure I've heard that. <laughs> That's where the guys stand in yeah. their, their nice shoes on shiny floors. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, uh, great term. Maybe we can talk a bit about some of the issues that have challenged the league over the last year, what you've learned from that, and especially from a content disruption point of view, how you think about navigating these conversations. So concussions, domestic violence, got a president tweeting about the league and mm-hmm. the, the conflict over take a knee. It's hard to imagine one league having more issues off the field in 12 months than the NFL has had. I imagine for you in your rookie year, it's uh, quite a... Uh, it was a fistful for sure. <laughs> a fistful um, of issues for your, yeah. for your rookie year. But, but um, how, how do you manage those from a, a content point, point of view? Well, you know, it's interesting from a, from a content point of view, we talk about football. We report on the facts of what's going on. What we don't do is we don't sort of let it go on and on and on and on about these issues because the truth is there are so many good things being done by players in the league. So that's how we handle it from a a content perspective. And it worked. And it's why we stole share from some of the other shows this year because people got sick about hearing about it. They knew what was going on, but can we just talk about football? For once, did it uh, challenge you in terms of in terms of your demographic reach? Did it? Uh, did you find it uh, these issues alienating women particularly as uh, as potential? Well, I mean, potential it, viewers. If you or look audience? at the domestic violence, right? That's the NFL has been doing a good job of that for a few years now, right? In fact, a lot of the work that some of these players are doing in their communities is around domestic violence and around that those sorts of issues. We talk about it a lot. We, we you know, from a corporate perspective, we have uh, a lot of training and we do a lot of work with our players and with our employees and things like that. So we take obviously the the investigations and the discipline cycle really, really seriously, as you've seen likely. And we take action. And I think that as a result, people understand the challenges and the fans who are women understand the challenges and the fans who are men understand the challenges as well. But in terms of engagement of uh, those non-traditional audiences, have you seen an an impact? So I wouldn't... uh, 
I would not characterize women as a non-traditional audience in football. Like almost half of our fans are women. So it's it's an important point to uh, recognize. We haven't, on the domestic violence issue, I would say, no, not now. The national anthem issue was more divisive in terms of our fan base, and it was more uh, intricate to come up with a solution there. And it really required a lot of talk and coming together, players and owners and league, to come together and um, strike a solution that would help solve some of these fundamental community issues that these young men were uh, had issues about. So we've done that, and we're working through that step by step. And the real goal there is to solve some of these issues that are real. They're real. And, you know, we'll, we'll make football better, but I think we're going to make a lot of communities better too. What was that like in the depths of the uh, take-a-knee crisis and controversy? You're in the middle of, of this, but you're also a newcomer both to America and to, to the NFL as an employee. You're seeing even the president sort of engaging and inflaming the, uh, the discussion to a certain extent. Must have been something you've never experienced before. Curious how, how you managed it and how you thought and worked your way through through those challenges? Well, um, I tend not to be excitable about these kinds of things. I do think that it, um, it was an interesting time. For me, on the one hand, I was like, wow, football is so intrinsic to the culture of this country that it is congruent with patriotism. Is there another brand like that? On the other hand, I think when we were in the middle of it and the discussions around the most senior of tables was so focused on, you know, let's get at the solution. Let's get at the root cause. Let's get at these issues that these guys are seeing in their community because that's, then you're, you're right. You're doing right and you're doing good. It's, it was all about that. And it was about putting, you know, what the president was saying out of the room and off the table and bringing the players in and really left foot, right foot on solutions that would help their communities and you know, make things better. Honestly, it was it was a very um, good conversation. Like, it just felt good. Tell us a bit about your geographic expansion. It is, as you've mentioned, it's the quintessential American game. And you're now trying to market it in Mexico and in, in Europe and China. What are the challenges and opportunities that you see beyond U.S. borders for, for America's game? Well, there are a lot of fans in the U.K., a lot of fans in the U.K. and Europe, a lot of fans in Mexico, a lot of fans in Canada, who are trying to build fandom in China. Well, I would say, and I think that Mark Waller, who runs our international business, would agree, it's not an international game. Football isn't in the Olympics. It's a very difficult game to learn. I mean, if it's, it's complicated. It's uh, more complex than I think most people understand. And if you don't start when you're young and it's not part of what you do, then it's very difficult to to learn as you're older. And I think to be a, an avid fan of the game, you have to understand quite a bit, right? So it's got to be like marketing cricket, probably in California. <laughs> how, how do you go about that, marketing football, American football in China? Well, it's about players. 
right? And it's, um, you know, Tom Brady did some work over there, and it, it's about back to stardom, right? And I, I think the NBA did a good job. Kobe Bryant did a lot of work in China, and obviously getting some Chinese players to play in the NBA was a, a, a kickstart for them. I think that the more international players we get playing in the league, then they foster a following um, back home. We saw that with Canada this year. It was really fun. There are quite a few Canadians in the league now, and they passed a Canadian flag around from game to game, and they're they're super proud to be playing in the NFL and they're super, super proud to be Canadians playing in the NFL, which I just think is fantastic. So when we're talking about international, I, I was referencing Europe Europe and China, but of course Canada mm-hmm. uh, remains uh, the market you know very well, but also an interesting challenge for the league. How do you see the NFL sort of growing in Canada over the next, uh, the next few years or even the next decade? Well, I think that we have a, a really important relationship with CTV and TSN here who broadcast now all of the games, uh, all of the content. It's exclusive to those two properties. Um, and over the last couple of years, they've done a really good job uh, promoting the game. They use the their conventional television megaphone really well to promote football. I think um, the fact that they own NFL and CFL rights is synergistic, not competitive. They lean in hard to football, all that, those kinds of things. We have a really good NFL Canada office here that focuses on league marketing and works in partnership. So that's how we're growing the game here and growing fandom. Um, I think CTV also does a really good job of integrating um, football content into their other entertainment and lifestyle programming shows throughout the day on CTV. And I I know that the league really appreciates that as well. And it brings in new fans, brings in women into the game. And um, I think that that's how we're growing fandom here in Canada. It's fascinating to watch the uh, the construction of new 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 stadiums for the NFL. So the House of Jerry is is now legendary and a, and a really interesting business case study. But we're seeing you know um, fantastic stadiums being planned for Las Vegas and for for Los Angeles, and it kind of goes against the grain of what's happening in the physical space elsewhere, especially in retail. And I'm curious what the NFL is learning in terms of the 360 experience by building these big stadiums, which are not used 24-7, mm-hmm. but are intensely used when they, when, when they are used, and how teams and, and, and the league is thinking about integrating that unique in-stadium experience with all the other channels that you're bi- building uh, through, uh, through digital, and what the insights might be for, for other businesses that are thinking about the interaction between physical, digital, and how the consumer is, is, is evolving. Right. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Jerry. I think what Jerry Jones taught the league when he built the Star and also his stadium was that you could you could build a microeconomy around a stadium and around a football development. And he proved that. And he is very proud of the work that he's done in that community in terms of building an economy around um, and adjacent to the Dallas Cowboys. And it's not just about the stadium at all. It's about something much bigger than that. When you build a stadium and you build office and you build retail and you build condominiums, you're creating an economy in that neighborhood that didn't exist there before. And you're, um, in many instances, you're making the community much better, much stronger, more services, better schools, like it all sort of uh, dominoes on from that. So it's not about stadiums. It's about a whole business around it and a whole economy around it in various communities. 
What is it about humanity that keeps us going out to these stadiums, fighting through crowds, fighting wicked weather if you're a, a Green Bay fan or a Buffalo Bills fan? I don't know. Uh, to be you know, somewhere part of in me person. would like to think that we would never really put a finger on it so that we would know because look, when Nick Foles got that touchdown on fourth down and you were in the stadium, there's no experience like it in the world. Like I you can't get that on your couch and I I don't know what it is, but it's about you see it the one time, you see it happen. And you're there just as surprised and shocked and excited as everybody else around you, complete strangers. It's just, it's an experience that I think is part of human nature. And I hope no predictive model ever puts a name on it. <laughs> I think that's a great uh, insight for anyone thinking about uh, disruption, surprise, human nature, mm-hmm. engagement, entertainment, and, yeah. and just the human value of any sort of consumer relationship that uh, businesses are building. Marianne, thank you so much for, uh, for joining Thanks, us. It's John, great it to great. see you. Thanks. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com. And join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Music.